0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Siemens Ingenuity for Life. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On November 8th, eBay CEO Devin Wenig, three of President Trump's key technology policy advisors, and Silicon Valley Congressman Ro Khanna joined other policymakers and experts live at The Washington Post to discuss the promise of new technologies like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and 3D printing. In this segment, three senior White House officials discuss the Trump administration's technology policy priorities, including holding private tech companies accountable, data privacy, antitrust issues and how they plan to meet the regulatory agenda of the new Congress. Let's listen.
1: Well, hey, everybody. Thanks so much for coming. Uh, My name is Tony Rahm. I'm the technology policy reporter here at The Post. uh, And thanks for joining us. I have a great panel here of basically the White House's tech brains. And so to the left of me immediately is Chris Liddell, the Deputy Chief of Staff for Policy Coordination. Uh, There's Abigail Slater, the Special Assistant to the President for Tech, Telecom, and Cyber Policy for the White House Economic Council, and Michael Kratzios, the Deputy Assistant to the President for Tech Policy. So we've got a lot to discuss, uh, whether it's the midterms, the President's comments yesterday, and some of the policy goals that the White House has next year. But before we get going, just a reminder to everybody that if you have questions for us, you can reach me through this wonderful little iPad by tweeting the Hashtag tech 202. Uh, And again, thanks for coming. So, Chris, I actually want to start with you, uh, and I want to start with the midterms uh, just on Tuesday. I know everybody's kind of exhausted about hearing about the midterms, but things have changed, right? We now have a Democratic House. There are more Republicans in the Senate. With the recognition that it's early, have you all thought about what the White House's tech agenda might look like next year with more Democrats in Congress?
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, why don't I give an overview of the the tech policy and and how it's Changed or not as the case may be as a result of Tuesday. So there's two distinct uh, policy streams the, the way that I think about it. They're, they're related but distinct. One is the whole modernization of government IT. Uh, so a, a quick overview of that. We spend uh, around $100 billion a year uh, inside the government on information technology providing services both to, to the 2 million employees but more importantly to the 330 million citizens that we do. And the way that I look at that is we're on the biggest uh, IT transformation of all time. I've worked inside private sector most of my life, uh, four large companies, 100,000 people or so, uh, but this is for millions, literally millions of people. That's a 10-year journey. That really hasn't changed as a result of Tuesday. So all of the things that we are trying to do in terms of building capability, working with the private sector and getting their input, which has been fantastic over the last two years, really continues on. And I see that not only for the next year, but literally this is a five, ten-year journey. So it will last past this administration uh, and on to multiple administrations. And one of the things that we are trying to do is think about we take the baton, we give it to the next party, they ne- next party. Because one of the biggest issues that we've had inside the government is we haven't had administrations that have been willing to think in a multi-administration perspective. So I see that as very bipartisan. Uh, I hope that the, you know, the new... Uh, House will continue to fund things like the Modernising Government uh, Technology Act, uh, the funding there, that's incredibly high uh, ROI projects, uh, but otherwise most of that is done through internal policy. So that's one distinct set. I think that continues on, and I'm incredibly delighted what we've achieved in the first couple of years. That'll continue on for the next uh, couple and hopefully for the after. On external national policy, uh, if I give a very broad overview of what we're trying to achieve there, and then Gail and Michael can sort of dig into any specifics, the way that I look at it is we have the most successful national IT uh, system in the world. Clearly, uh, we're the leaders in virtually every IT sector that we are, and that's because of the strength of the combination of the government, academia, and the private sector. Uh, we have been incredibly successful. Um, In that, and we want to continue that. Now, we need to think about how that's going to be successful with the industries of the future, Uh, so things like 5G, artificial intelligence, uh, quantum computing. Uh, So we need to think about how that system needs to change, maybe from what it's done in the last 10 to 20 years, and I think that's a really interesting conversation about how we change the system and maybe change how we in the private sector and academia really continue to have national leadership. And the government's role in that, we spend roughly $120 billion of the $500 billion that we spend in R&D in this country, so we obviously are a big participant in direct spending. We need to make sure that we spend that money incredibly wisely, in particular in these industries of the future that are critical. We obviously need to have a regulatory environment that promotes innovation, Um, so naturally we are a deregulatory uh, administration, I think that's clear. But in some of the industries of the future, um, drone policy and things like that that Michael's worked on, we need to have a smart regulatory policy that promotes uh, growth and innovation. Uh, And then last but not least, convening power. So the government has an incredibly important role in bringing together private sector and academia, things like setting national standards for uh, workforce data, which we can get into the... um, But how do we bring those parties together clearly we're not going to be like some governments around the world where we are going to mandate innovation we need to let innovation flourish but we have a role in convening and, and making that happen so that's our broad agenda and that really doesn't change as a result of tuesday so from my point of view certainly in the technology space uh it's very much business as normal everything that we've done in the last two years will continue to do
1: sure i want to tease each of those things out like workforce in just a second, but before I do, uh, one of the things that we've heard a lot, we've heard two things from House Democrats since the election. The first is that committees that are frustrated with this administration and its handling of a wide variety of policy areas might drag more administration officials up to come testify. Are you worried about that sort of thing affecting your ability to do technology policy work? For instance, the SEC chairman being brought uh, consistently to Capitol Hill. Uh,
2: From a technology point of view, all the things that I mentioned, no, I don't think they are high Uh, on the list of of likely. And again, when I look at things like uh, modernising government technology, we have had broad bipartisan support. The Modernising Government Technology Act I think was unanimously passed. So I don't see that as really being frustrated. So
1: the other thing that we've heard, and particularly from a Democrat, uh, Nancy Pelosi, who could soon become Speaker of the House, is a new conversation around infrastructure. And we all joke about infrastructure weeks sometimes, but are we looking at a potential
3: new infrastructure week in 2019? Gail, Michael? So I wouldn't want to get too far ahead of the internal planning, but um, I I know that we've had a conversation, the old economy infrastructure piece, but also, of course, broadband is a very important piece of Mm -hmm. infrastructure, and I I like to sit around the NEC staff table and remind people of that. Um, And so we would, if there was an infrastructure conversation to be had, expect broadband to be fully part of that process. Mm -hmm.
1: So there's an openness, Michael?
4: I think I think Gail covered it, yeah. Broadband's a big, big part of the agenda.
1: That being said, folks have talked for a long time that the only way you're going to fix the country's broadband woes is if you spend a whole lot of money. I think at times we've heard the $2 billion figure floated from Democrats when they say that's the only way you can really truly improve internet access in the country's hardest to reach rural areas. Without maybe commenting on that number in particular, is there a willingness of the White House to spend that kind of money on something like broadband next year?
2: We already spend more than that. Sure. When you look at the, the total of what we spend uh, through the FCC and directly we spend something like five or six billion dollars a year already mm-hmm. so if if, t- if it 's two billion is the bogey then we 're more than that already, so spending that in the most effective fashion is incredibly important, but having a regulatory environment that promotes private sector to spend is also incredibly important, and then you get into areas like which are related like the opportunity zone, part of the uh, tax act, which promotes investment into um, uh, underdeveloped poor areas. So when you think of r- rural broadband as the moniker but when you think about broadband you should think about broadband in the context of people who are um, not wealthy enough necessarily to do it themselves. So it's not just rural, it's um, you know urban areas where, which are underdeveloped as well. So if we, things like the Opportunity uh, Zone part of the Tax Act Promotes investment in those areas so direct spending yes, but every time you think about the government's role you should think about the Combination of direct spending regulatory environment and convening power sure
1: if I'm reading the tea leaves It sounds like maybe no new additional two billion dollars of federal spending you guys think you can do it with what you have
2: Well, I think that spending what we do effectively is incredibly important and that's been part of the focus of the last year Uh, Whether there is more money allocated as a result of a bigger infrastructure deal or not, we'll deal with that when it is. But we spend a lot of money already on Mm broadband development as a country.
3: And to add to Chris's point about IT modernization, let's play a long game. Let's play a bipartisan long game here. The same applies with rural broadband to your question, Tony. We're not going to solve it overnight, um, but we can make a start at... Um, good policy, getting good good policies in place that create incentives for the private sector to invest and get that next tranche online. And
2: promoting innovative new ways of getting broadband too. It's not just necessarily the old old style of of Mm -hmm. broadband that's going to be the solution to it. So thinking about new ways of delivering broadband to uh, sparsely populated areas has clearly got to be an interesting area.
3: Sure.
1: Uh, I want to turn to another thing that happened this week, which uh, were some comments from the president at his press conference yesterday. He was asked about regulating social media, and he struck a couple notes. He first said that he felt that Allegations of bias on social media networks is, quote, a serious problem. Uh, He also said that he, quote, likes free speech and felt that, quote, when you start to regulate, a lot of bad things can happen. But lastly, he said he'd be open to working with Democrats who he thought were more interested in potentially regulating social media. So let's start high level. Michael, do you look at social media right now, Facebook, Google, Twitter, whatnot, and given all the conversation we've had recently— Begin to wonder if it's become some sort of wild west that's in need of greater scrutiny and potentially regulation. What's the bigger thinking here on social media? I'll, I'll let Gail field
4: field this set of questions <laughs> for the you. team.
3: <laughs> and thanks for the softball question. Too.
4: <laughs> <laughs> well, it was so, to Michael. He passed it to you. <laughs> <laughs>
3: so um, uh, this is um, this to take put this in a wider context in a big. Picture context. Um, this is an, an issue that's been out there for some time. Um, the latest iteration that we heard about just yesterday was conservative bias. But I think it's fair to say we've been looking at how do we writ large um, think about, talk about content moderation at scale on, on platforms. And so, um, you know, last year we had sex trafficking. I know from Mm -hmm. deeply personal experience about that one (laughs) I testified before the Senate Commerce Committee on that one Um, but you know there's been other issues such as terrorist content and so on um, that have begged the question how how do we moderate at scale how do the platforms moderate at scale is there a role for government here Um, and so I think that's that's a really important conversation to be having And I think, in some ways, not least because um, when you over in Europe, you look at what's going on, they're they're regulating already, and so we have out there various proposals around terrorist content that would create obligations to take down the content within one hour of being noticed of it, and so on. And there's a proposal that if that obligation is not met, you could. Be looking at fines of up to four percent of your revenues. That's the European model, which is billions
1: and billions of dollars for some of these companies.
3: Right, and so 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 I think there's um, definitely a need for a conversation. If only that we can start talking about how we deal with this issue um, using American standards and imbuing it with American values such as speech. Um, and so so I think that's I think it's a good thing that he raised it.
1: Yeah, was there a frustration at the White House, at really any level of the White House, that in both of the two major um, terrorist acts that we saw the better part of the past month, the Mm -hmm. pipe bombs that were mailed Mm -hmm. to national political figures and the horrible attack on that synagogue in Pittsburgh, Mm -hmm. that those individuals were posting very disgusting things on social media, including a lot of anti-Semitism, on one network in particular called Gab, which has Mm -hmm. really become a haven for the alt-right. Was there a frustration at the White House that something had to be done about this?
3: I think that again, it's 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 about this wider conversation, right? Um, I don't. I mean, we 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 talked about it, um, but it's it's in a general sense, it's how do you how do you set this framework to deal with all of these content moderation issues, and how do you do it in a way that's imbued with U.S. values that reflects the importance of the First Amendment here versus some other jurisdictions and so on. Um, and, again, it's, it's very timely. It was also timely last year. It will be timely again for another reason next year.
1: Sure. So right? one of the things that we had heard a few weeks ago uh, when Google CEO Sundar Pashai came to the White House mm-hmm. <clears throat> was a comment from some White House officials saying that they were going to gather tech CEOs at some point in the near future to talk about these issues. Any update mm-hmm. on where that stands?
3: So th- that's, that's still the plan. Um, it's it's hard to schedule these really important.
1: <laughs> Tim Cook's not on Speed <laughs> I mean, I'm there.
3: You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so that's that's still the plan, and it's in the works.
1: Got it. And Chris, I guess just to think high level about this, is there this feeling among folks in the White House that, you know, as somebody who worked in the tech industry for as long as you did, that a lot of these tech companies have sort of just like lost control of things, that the price of the gangbusters growth that these companies have had, the benefits that they've had for the economy, that it's come with some costs that perhaps we've taken too long to begin to think about?
2: No, again, I I would say uh, starting at the high level and thinking about policy, I come back to what it is. I think we have the best companies in the world from a tech point of view, and we are a business friendly uh, environment. Obviously we want to promote it in a responsible fashion, technology, but our natural instinct is how can we help companies grow and become global champions as well. So um, yes, as Gail says, we need to do that in a responsible fashion. We need to have a regulatory environment that protects people but our natural instinct is to help companies.
1: Sure. Uh, Going back to the election for a second, since we're on the topic of social media, Gail and Michael, I wonder if you can address how you think Facebook, Google, and Twitter did uh, during the election to stop disinformation, what do you think they did well and maybe what you think they have to improve upon.
4: I don't think I really have to, much to, to comment on that. I would sort of, certainly point you to DHS and the incredible efforts that they've been, they've been undertaking over the last couple of months to prepare for the, for the election. I think it's something that the administration has certainly been tracking and thinking about for, for some time.
3: Yeah, I think that the NSC would concur with that. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. They, would, they would give more credit to DHS. And- yeah. And sometimes they, they are the unsung heroes. Sure, in but you know, in,
1: in past administrations, we mm-hmm. saw OSTP in particular kind of sit in some of these conversations. And so I'm wondering, is there a role for OSTP to play on the domestic misinformation side? I mean, put aside Russia and Iran and some of the foreign powers that have tried to game the conversation. Is there a role to play to convene these folks to improve the health of civic discourse
4: online? Yeah, and I think that that's certainly being done. I think it's something that sort of our folks at DHS, our law enforcement officials and people who track these elections and these issues um, think about carefully. And I think for us, from an OCP standpoint, I think we have constantly tried to be be a, a hub for the White House where the tech community can come and interact with us and share their thoughts and priorities and issues. And um, we constantly have our door open and are excited and ready to listen and, uh, and support them and connect them to, uh, to, to all the folks in government who are working so hard. Yeah,
1: but, what, yeah but what's that look like? Like, like, like has there been an example in recent memory or something that you guys are thinking about on this front to deal with this information? I mean, it's a serious challenge, as experts have told us in the better part of the past, you know, two years. Jump ball. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, I think that's, again, you know, talking about the role of DHS, something that we would defer to on the interagency. Um, we are part of the interagency, we're involved, we are briefed on the work that's ongoing, um, but it's um, very much a team sport. A lot of it's just blocking and tackling on the ground. Um, there is, yes, there's a role for OSTP, but they're already playing the role within the interagency context.
1: Is that, is that something that's likely to come up when the CEOs come to the White House you know, in the next couple months or so, the, the meeting with Sundar that we talked about, this issue of disinformation online?
2: I mean, we have a number of CEO meetings coming up, so that's possibly one of the topics. Again, I can think of another CEO uh, meeting that we're looking to organise again, as Gail says, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. scheduling these around the President's availability is always challenging, but there are uh, a number of CEO uh, meetings that I can have. One of them, as I say, is focusing much more on what i describe as the industries of the future and thinking about that, but clearly... The issues you're raising that you've Mm -hmm. spent about the last 10 minutes talking about um, would be one of them as well. we spent
1: the last two years talking about those. Uh, But uh, just to focus uh, on the CEOs for a second, you know, at the very beginning of this administration, some of the folks in Silicon Valley were some of the president's biggest critics, right? Folks like Apple CEO uh, Tim Cook. Uh, Google CEO Sundar Pichai, they had criticized this president on issues like immigration. Some of that's changed a little bit, right? Tim Cook in particular has talked more uh, with this White House than some of his peers. So what is the relationship with Silicon Valley? A lot of these folks were out there campaigning against uh, against the president and Republicans in 2018.
2: Yeah, I, I've I found it incredibly positive and healthy. Uh, I think that in particular the successful CEOs, and i would put Tim Cook in that category, have been able to segregate the way they feel about some issues, which they don't support the administration on, with the issues that they do. Uh, and so we have moved from a sort of a conversation on everything to a conversation on issue by issue. So the most successful CEO is the one that said, look, we don't agree with you on X, but we definitely agree with you on modernising government technology, who couldn't, mm-hmm. so we are going to embrace you on that. We had a fantastic uh, uh, function the other day on civic service, mm-hmm. uh, which is having private sector technology companies allowing their employees to do tours of duty, this incredibly positive, constructive way of the tech sector engaging with government, got nothing to do with some of the more controversial topics. We've had incredible support from all of the top tech companies in doing something like that. This is transformational. This is like allowing hundreds or potentially thousands of people to come in and really assist the government be better. So tech companies and, and virtually all of the major ones have signed up for that. So. They don't have to agree with us on everything, clearly. Mm -hmm. They don't agree with us on everything, but on the things that they really think are important and that they feel passionate about like that or a number of the other areas, you know, which I think are worth talking about, like artificial intelligence, they've said yes, absolutely. Um, So the most successful CEOs in terms of dealing with the administration, which pretty much is all of them, certainly from my personal uh, interaction with them, have been very issue-specific and willing to engage in a very constructive fashion on and what I think are really positive agenda items. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: I'd add to that, Chris, so from an NEC standpoint, because we have this domestic piece, but also the international mm-hmm. um, uh, issues and portfolio. And um, I can see that there's um, there's a natural tendency on the part of someone like Larry, but also Chris. You know, as a Republican, you show restraint, right? We're not looking to regulate sort of no knee-jerk reactions. Um, They're they're successful companies, but they're American companies. And so internationally overseas, um, the job of the White House, the USG here, is to be their champions overseas where appropriate. And so they they look at the digital trade chapter of USMCA, it's historic in nature, um, and it's um, very well received by the tech industry. Um, And then on issues like digital taxation within the EU, for example, Um, Treasury has pushed back on that proposal and and so so there's there's also that dimension to the conversation domestic but also international and there's so many
2: areas that we can can uh, connect with H1B reform and thinking about how we um, keep more talented. Graduates in this country, incredibly constructive part of the immigration debate, which unfortunately doesn't get a lot of focus. That's that's another one I can think about. Cybersecurity inside the government. So we put a report out last year on cybersecurity inside the government. We got 100 um, replies from the major companies down to smaller ones, all again incredibly constructive. So there is vastly more areas where we are. Uh, aligned with and supported by the private sector than we actually have the time to do
4: yeah
1: what, so just you you would mention H1b in particular uh, what what is the president 's latest thinking on h1b immigration i mean that 's been tied up in these larger conversations about comprehensive immigration reform, about the border wall and things of the sort. So what is the president 's thinking about h1Bs? Uh,
2: well, I think there 's a legislative advance to that, and there 's sort of a, a regulatory one legislatively, it might be, get caught up in a, in a broader discussion. Um, but the president's overall instinct, and he said this publicly a number of times, he wants to find ways to make sure that people who um, graduate with in a highly skilled area like technology stay inside the country. He finds that a very positive part of the overall immigration. He's talked about merit immigration. Clearly that fits inside merit immigration to the extent that we can from a um, regulatory point of view rather than a legislative point of view, because the H-1B system, to a large extent, is governed by legislation, but to the extent that we can modify the um, regulatory point of view to promote it to be more highly skilled as opposed to outsourcing roles, there's um, I think it's around 120,000 H-1Bs, so it's, it's quite a big pool. Uh, traditionally, unfortunately, they have gone to lower-skilled, outsourcing types of jobs, we would love to find ways to change that, to be more people who are coming out with PhDs in the tech sector. So the President is is 100% aligned by that. We'll try and do it by as much as we can by regulatory. If it can be done legislatively as well in some way, that would be as part of a merit-based system, that'd be fantastic as
1: Sure, well. I still want to get to issues like AI and privacy with the few minutes that we have left, but before I move on, with respect to immigration, I think a lot of folks in the Valley end up criticizing you guys because they see the, the agency-level actions on things like the entrepreneur visa, on things like spousal visas uh, for those who do have H-1Bs. A lot of that stuff has been scaled back. They sort of think that DHS is working against them. How would you answer some of those criticisms?
2: Well, again, I would say... Uh, The president has spoken about merit-based reform as part of the immigration platform. They should welcome that as a concept. I mean, a relatively, as a country, very small proportion of the people who uh, come in as legal immigrants do it on a merit-based system, relative to any other country I know. Um, So promoting the concept of merit-based immigration, which clearly would be at least partially orientated towards the tech sector, uh, I would think they would, um, th- there should be a high degree of alignment on.
1: Sure. Turning to artificial intelligence, we had that lovely little video when we sat down uh, about self-driving cars and things of the sort. The Obama administration did a lot on AI. You guys have done a lot on AI. There's a task force now focused on AI. In 2019, what's the next step for the White House, Michael?
4: Yeah, I think the most important thing that we're trying to share is and trying to be and have been pushing for the past year and about half has been this this broader focus on, as Chris discussed, this idea of industries of the future of emerging technologies, this idea that For America to ensure its leadership in in technology broadly, we need to ensure that it is the home for the next great technological discoveries, and it's something that requires an emphasis on the deregulatory front or creating a regulatory environment that allows autonomous vehicles to drive safely, allows drones to drive safely. Um, It can allow for our greatest researchers in Silicon Valley and across the country to be able to do their their important work on on artificial intelligence. Um, The second thing that we really toggle on, in addition to to the regulatory factors, the issues relating to how the federal government spends its R&D. We spend an incredible amount of money and the hundreds of billions of dollars. And for us to be able to plug into a system that is actually primarily private sector R&D, it's critical that we think very carefully about how we can make the most impact with the dollars that we do have. And what we ask ourselves and ask the community and talk a lot about are what are the resources that the federal government has that the private sector and academia don't? And those are the types that we want to really focus on and leverage and push out. And whether it's our supercomputing infrastructure at some of our national labs, whether it's in uh, Interesting data sets that the only the government has and the private sector doesn't have access to. Those are the types of questions we ask. And as we try to push the larger agenda around things like AI, we kind of toggle them into those buckets of regulatory actions and then. So you, are,
1: are, are you talking now at the White House though about guardrails and some of this stuff, whether it's about Dealing with issues of bias baked into the algorithms, whether it's dealing with some of the privacy implications, uh, things like redlining that lots of expert groups have pointed out. Are you thinking about regulatory solutions to some of those issues?
4: So I think trust in these technologies is absolutely critical. The American people need to believe that the that the technologies that they're they're dealing with and working with are ones that they they actually trust. And I think but a couple of toggles we can think of. And one that I, you know, I think is really interesting, the the, the greatest or the, the biggest spend in explainability, AI explainability research in the world. World was made by DARPA and that's and, and that's AI that can explain why it made the decision it made exactly exactly so um, you know a lot of times there's a lot of debate about whether or not how does how does an AI get to the uh, get to the conclusion that it does and be able to better understand how um, how that conclusion is drawn is something that can can help inform the way that policymakers think about how that technology can integrate into an existing regulatory framework.
1: so then is the solution for the US government to show up and drop tens of billions of dollars like the Chinese are doing I mean that's the thing that we hear the most from folks in the administration and outside is that China is out outpacing or threatens to outpace the US and AI, should the US government spend that much money too?
4: Uh, well, I think it's, I, I think the federal government spends a lot of money on this area. And I think the one thing we'll point to is something that the federal government has prioritized. So in the president's budget that was submitted to Congress last year, we specifically called out AI as an R&D priority. This was something called out by the president to Congress. So our commitment to to allocating federal R&D dollars to it is pretty, pretty obvious. I think um, that being said, I think the next step is coordinating that R&D. And I think we're in a very unique model where we don't have a ministry of science. We have folks at DARPA working on it. We have folks at the National Science Foundation, at Department of Energy working on it. And that's why we created the Select Committee on Artificial Intelligence. It really brought together the most important and most senior R&D leaders from across the government to help coordinate that effort in a way that we can get the maximum return for the dollars we do spend.
1: Sure, we only have a little bit of time left, so I want to just ask you point blank, Gail, the other last issue we didn't get to, which is privacy. 30 seconds. I know, it's going to be a real quick one. So uh, privacy, I know you guys have been working on uh, some principles around what privacy regulation might look like. So point blank, is the White House thinking about legislation on privacy? Is that the end goal here that that you guys want to try to deal with this through a law?
3: So we're dealing with some breaking news here. I mean, we have very recent elections, and we have not yet had a chance to reach out to the new... Soon to be stood up House Energy (laughs) um, and Commerce Committee, and so on, and the new staffers on on the Senate side. So I don't want to speak for Congress, but we have already indicated that there's a willingness, absolutely, within the White House to work with Congress on privacy legislation. Um, It's um, it's not a completely blank hall pass. Where we will expect to see certain parameters in that legislation, and the devil's going to be in the detail, to use that cliche. Um, but we've already indicated a willingness to do that, and we understand preemption. We know there's one place to go for that, but you know, we've put in place what we think is a thoughtful policy-making process through NTIA, also at NIST, generally through the Department of Commerce that we think um, can be an important um, platform for people to go to to, to be part of the, the process and to... to uh, frankly, to forge common ground on an yeah, important
1: issue. Uh, briefly, uh, after all is said and done, once comments are in, mm-hmm. once we have principles, will mm-hmm. the White House write a draft bill?
3: If asked to. If asked to. <laughs> you ask her to? <laughs> <laughs> She's to to do it? <laughs>
1: you guys think about writing a privacy bill?
2: Uh, I, I don't have anything to add to what Gail said. <laughs> all
1: right, well, we'll leave it at that. Uh, uh, Michael, Chris, Gail, thank you guys for Thanks showing sorry. up. I uh, really appreciate the time here. Thanks to all of you uh, for coming. Uh, We're going to move on to the next program. Thanks, guys.
0: Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.